You're listening to Conversations with Shonda, a Minneapolis Foundation podcast that unpacks the community's grittiest, most vexing problems, hosted by Shonda Smith-Baker. I would love it for the listeners if you could just provide, you know, introductions, say who you are and say perhaps what you do to just give them context for where we're going to head. Sure. So I'm Sue Abderholden, and I'm the executive director here at NAMI Minnesota, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And we're a statewide grassroots organization dedicated to improving the lives of children and adults with mental illnesses and their families um, by providing education, support, and advocacy. I have family members, and that's why this mission is so important to me as well. Yeah. Sue, how long have you been there? It'll be 21 years this fall. So a long time. It feels to me from my limited point of view on this this particular issue that there's been more attention in a positive way on issues related to mental health. Has that been your experience over the the 21 years that you've been engaged uh, formally? Uh, absolutely. More people are talking about it. You hear, you know, about celebrities and you know, famous athletes talking about their struggles with anxiety or depression or PTSD. And I would say during the last two some years during the pandemic, there's been more attention to it than ever before because people, so many people have been impacted by the pandemic in terms of anxiety and depression that more people are talking about it. Can we just start with anxiety, right? Because I think that along with self-care, right? Like you hear like radical self-care, which to me implies that people are not doing well or trying to make sure that they stay well, right? And that the increased anxiety around whatever it may be, getting getting COVID, I hear people talk about heart rate increase. I hear people talk about short and tempered mints in the workplace. We've often seen and thought about, or I have mental health issues as something that has been diagnosed but it also feels like there's a narrative that's going on around sort of this continuum of mental health and how we care for it. Can you say maybe some things that are maybe trending in the workplace that might be useful? Sure. So, you know, it's important to remember mental health is a continuum. So you have really good mental health and then you have, you know, diagnosed serious mental illnesses and then there's a lot in between. And I think what we're seeing right now is a lot in between. Not necessarily people who need to be formally diagnosed and receive treatment in terms of, you know, medication and therapy, but people who are realizing that their mental health isn't great. And so they're reacting to things, you know, when we're all stressed out, right? We react sometimes not in the best way. You know, we might be a little snappy, you know, kind of anger, less patience about things. And that's, I think, what we're seeing in the workplace. People are not patient. People are being crabby. Think about the signs you see. I mean, whether it's fast food or we have a clinic on the first floor and they're like, please be kind. Please be kind. We're doing the best that we can. We didn't have those signs before. We didn't have signs up reminding people to be nice, right? And so I think that impatience and nerves are frayed. People just are not being kind to each other. I guess you just made me think about the number of videos that we've seen of people acting out on airplanes. Yes, right. And think if you could do them in all the other places where people are not being kind and where people are being, they're really overacting, right, to what's happening in front of them. I know that I've heard this, but from an employer point of view, what are some things that should be considered if we are 
completely thinking about how to take care, not just the physical health, but the mental health of our employees? I think the first thing is to actually be conscious about it, right? And to kind of recognize it, name it and say, yeah, we know people are really struggling and, and, and then to do some things about it. Certainly promoting good mental health practices. So really talking about things like exercise, um, having walking meetings to really promote that, to get those endorphins going in people's brains, right? Having things like um, sad lights available during the winter for people who are coming into the office. Promoting, you know, mental health days. I mean, we take time off when we're having a, running a temperature, right? Or having a bad cough. We need to take time off when our mental health is really, you know, struggling as well. And, and then the thing that employers never really look at is what are your benefits? Mental health parity is still a dream. It is not a reality. And most employers actually never look to see what their mental health benefits are. How, how large is their network? How long do employees have to wait to actually get an appointment with a psychiatrist or a therapist? Um, how narrow is that drug formulary so people can't actually access the medications that are going to be the best for them? You know, all of those kinds of things um, most employers never look at. And if you're really going to want to promote good mental health in both in the extreme cases and just in, you know, kind of the prevention uh, part of it, you, you need to look at the whole thing. I know the social sector has sort of a fascination with working very, very hard and taking no vacation. And I'm often saying here, right, like you have to take vacation. I've been uh, intentionally trying to model what that looks like. And I've been, you know, the number one offender of I can't take a day off. I have meetings to go to. If I take a day off, there's going to be more when I come back. And so recognizing that I'm also responsible for taking this time, and I can't even imagine how much PTO is sitting on the books of nonprofits across the sector. But if you were, you know, to speak to the employee, what would you recommend around that? So I'm the worst offender. I have a really hard time taking time off as well because I'm, you know, running an agency, but we do need to take that time off to have our brains not be thinking about work, but something else, to be able to dream, right? And to think and to do all those kinds of things. And if you're feeling like it's really hard to take, you know, two weeks off in a row, then take little pieces, you know, come in late on a morning, take a day off here and there, leave early on a Friday. We can still do those things if the stress of thinking about how many emails we're going to have in our inbox when we come back is too high. And, and there are little things that we can do. I mean, I make sure that I take a walk every morning because I know that that helps my stress levels. And so, you know, if I'm not going to make it in by eight o'clock, that's okay. My walk is actually more important than coming in at 8 a.m. So what if I come in at 8.30 or nine, right? And so really kind of thinking about what are those things, and it's going to be different for every person. What are those things that actually help relieve your stress and to actually schedule them into your life so that you make sure you do them? Yeah, so for us adults, it's a little bit easier. And as I think about, our young residents getting ready to go back to school. Have you seen improvements of our educational system as it relates to mental health services for students? So the hard part right now in terms of youth mental health is that it's much worse than it was before. So our young people were really impacted by the pandemic. I mean, we've seen developmental delays in little kids because they weren't with other kids. Um, we've seen kids come back to school who have gone through a, a very traumatic event and they don't really have the words to describe what happened to them. We have kids who had food insecurity during this time. 
We've had children who have lost a caregiver, right? They died by COVID. You know, George Floyd's murder and the impact, you know, on the BIPOC community. So there has been a lot going on. And those kids, most kids are actually doing much more poorly. And so what we've seen is the schools definitely see this as a high priority. We have a couple of programs in Minnesota that are very helpful. So we certainly have school support personnel, whether it's a school counselor, social worker, or nurse. But we also have a program in Minnesota called School Linked Mental Health where grant money actually goes to a community mental health provider who then co-locates in the school. So they see their child in their own milieu. And the other thing it does is it removes all the barriers for families getting access to mental health care. They don't have to think about where, they don't have to take off of work to bring their child to a therapist, anything like that. They can just, the child can walk down the hallway and visit a mental health professional. We're in about 60% of actual school buildings, so that's pretty good. But usually by December, they're full and there are then waiting lists. And so knowing that this program works, it's really incumbent upon the legislature to fully fund this, to make sure that all kids can access mental health care when they need it. Some schools like in Rochester, they're gonna start doing mental health screenings of all kids. You can tell some of the kids who are struggling with their mental health because they're actually, you can see their behaviors, right? They're kind of acting out in the classroom, they're loud, they're inattentive, but we miss the kids who are quiet who, because of their anxiety or depression, we can't really tell, right? And so doing those screenings helps us identify all the kids, which is really important because as with any healthcare issue, early identification and treatment yields the best outcomes. Sue, okay, so there's a couple of reactions that I have to all students being screened. So one is they do that with parent permission, I assume. Correct. And then... Over diagnoses of kids of color, specifically African-American boys, tend to have really taken off, especially with ADD and ADHD. If we move there, then is there any guidance around how to do that equitably? And then how do we ensure that once screened, there's enough support, right? Like, so if I screen my son and find out he has some challenges and then there's no support services available or you have this wait list, now, as a parent, I'm a I'm I'm sort of in a pickle, right? As a parent that would not be able then to provide what I need to provide for my child. So those are all good questions. So one, I would just remind people that a screen is kind of like a thermometer. It doesn't tell you what someone has. It doesn't even tell you that it might be a bad thing. It just tells you that the temperature is up. You might want to look at this more carefully. That's really what a screen is. It is not a diagnostic assessment. Um, and I think you're right that we have absolutely seen, um, especially, you know, young African-American boys misdiagnosed with ADHD and also oppositional defiant disorder. And, you know, neither which are, are great in terms of if you're, if you're misdiagnosed. But I think as a parent, I would rather know that my child screen positive so that I can perhaps watch them more closely, at least get them onto a wait list rather than not knowing at all. And, and so I think that's part of it. The other thing I will say is that we've also seen the suicide rate among, you know, young, you know, Black teens and young adults go up. And so that's another reason for us to be concerned to make sure that we are, you know, kind of catching those kids and, you know, finding that they're struggling. And again, that's going to be more internal than external. And we want to, we want to save their lives, right? We want to know that they're struggling so that we can help them. 
And that's something new because usually those suicide rates were lower among that age group and, and among African-Americans. And so that is also something that's new that we really want to pay great attention to. Can we talk about that for a second? So I've been proximate to two suicides in the last probably 30 days of oh, African-American. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a little rough. And I would say in the last several years, I could probably name eight Black men that I know or know through someone that has committed suicide. Growing up, that was not something that I was aware of. It was something that I thought other people did in other communities. And it is becoming, it feels like a crisis is it a crisis? Is it something that we should be more broadly paying attention to? No, absolutely. It's a crisis. And we need to really look at all the factors that lead to that. Certainly the pandemic had a huge impact, right? You know, again, the killing of George Floyd and other Black men has a huge impact. I think that, you know, in some ways, because of, you know, political things, we're seeing racism way out in the open that perhaps was hidden in, in some situations, right? And so a lot of those young people have gone through, again, a huge traumatic event during the last couple of years. And teenagers don't necessarily have the tools in their toolbox to deal with those things. And I think we've also certainly seen in the African-American community not to talk about mental illness very much, not to talk about depression. The church in one hand, faith communities can be a protective factor, but sometimes they can also limit you from talking about it. And so the more that we can have those conversations, I know they've been working with barbershops, right? Black barbershops to really talk about mental health and to talk about depression, which we think is really critical. So we do need to talk about it, but we also need to make sure that people know what those signs and symptoms are and then what to do. Meaning talk to talk to God and pray about it and not to a therapist. Is that sort of the gist of it? Yes. But we need to sometimes talk to a therapist, right? Yeah. We need to know what the resources are in the community. And again, faith plays a huge role in people's recovery, but it's sometimes it's not the only thing. Can we talk about culturally diverse therapists and workforce? I know that you've been working on that. Can you sort of talk about why you're working on it and then what progress you've seen? So we've seen that the workforce, the mental health workforce in Minnesota is largely white. And so we don't have a culturally diverse workforce. And I think it is really important for people to be able to see someone who understands their culture and community. And it can be hard for someone, someone from the BIPOC community to go to a white therapist and have to explain the impact of racism on their mental health. Um, whereas if you were to go to another BIPOC therapist, right, they would, they would understand right away. It's why, honestly, I mean, I like to see women physicians, you know, especially OBGYN, right? I mean, I don't want to see a man. I want to see a woman. And so I think that she will understand what I'm going through. And so I think the same is true when we talk about mental health. And so what we've seen is we have to figure out how to build that workforce. And a couple of things that we've seen is that people are graduating, you know, from graduate school, BIPOC mental health professionals, or, you know, students, graduates, but they're not going on to become licensed. And there are barriers there. And a big barrier is they can't find a supervisor who's from their culture and community to do those supervisory hours. And so we did pass legislation creating a program to actually pay for the credits needed for a BIPOC mental health professional to become a supervisor so that we can bring more of them into the field and then help more people become licensed. We also expanded the loan forgiveness program because certainly, you know, financial 
constraints and high student loans and all of those kinds of things can be a barrier. So we have that program as well. We created a council that will start meeting this fall to really look at all these issues and what are the other barriers? What can we do to bring more people into the field from diverse cultures and communities, help them kind of get across that finish line as well? And the other thing that we did is actually require all mental health professionals to get continuing education on becoming more culturally informed and responsive. You know, I, I think about people like Dr. Willie Garrett, you know, who's head of the Black Psychologists, and he said, it's going to take years to bring more Black psychologists in. So in the meantime, we need to make sure that the white psychologists really understand more and can respond better. Mm-hmm. So those are just some of the things that we've been working on to create a more culturally diverse workforce. If we go back to the students for a minute, so one issue that has always bothered me quite a bit is the suspension disparity that happens in schools. And I imagine a lot of that, you sort of describe the students that are acting out in classroom tend to be the ones that are struggling the most. And then the response is often suspension without those students getting support. And you know that that compounds and then those students often are ending up tracking We've talked a lot about the school to prison pipeline, so we we probably don't need to completely revisit that, but that's exactly what is happening. And so are there any policies that actually protect these students and young people from, from being suspended when actually what they need is a therapist and teachers and support staff to, to care for them differently? So there's a couple of things that we've worked on to try to address that. One is that we were actually the first state in the country to require teachers to have continuing education on the early warning signs of mental illness in children mm-hmm. to understand that what they're seeing in terms of behaviors may actually be symptoms. And so they isn't something to be punished, but to be treated and supported. And so I think that was a, a big step, certainly not the only step we need to take, but it was a big step. Um, The other thing that uh, happens is if the child's been suspended, if the child's been suspended for, you know, quite a few days, they're supposed to do a screening. They're supposed to talk about the children's um, and the child's mental health to see if there's some other underlying reasons for what they're seeing. I think the most important part, though, is to not allow children in K through three to be suspended. There is just no reason to do that. And there's been a bill introduced at the legislature, had hearings um, every, almost every year for the last I don't know, five or six years um, to not allow that to happen. Because what does a kindergartner or first first grader learn by being suspended? Nothing, right? And we know that that if they're bad, I mean, they start creating a negative narrative. Exactly. And we know if you keep suspending a child by the third grade, they become disengaged from school, as do their parents. And so then you really kind of see that you know, school to prison pipeline and kids not doing well, kids aren't learning. And so then they're acting out. And that's why third grade is so important, because if you're not actually, you know, reading for content to third grade, um, you're going to you're going to erupt in the classroom because you don't want to look stupid. Right. You're going to want to say, I want to get out of this classroom so no one knows that I can't read. And so so that becomes an issue, too. So. Um, So what the bill would have done is say you can't do it and you really need to look into what's happening, you know, bring the family in. Um, If we need to do a screening, uh, it could be anxiety in the classroom, right? It could be it it could be depression. It could be trauma. It could be just a whole ton of things. And Mm -hmm. so let's do social emotional learning in those early grades to really help kids um, be able to express themselves in in an appropriate way and, and help them. Um, they just don't have the tools in their toolbox to be able to deal with the stressors of what's going on in their life. 
So now I've thought about two of the superintendents that sort of got ousted on policy around no suspension, right? Bernadia Johnson and Valeria in St. Paul that took a hard stance on suspensions and, and it became a pretty political. And then you've got teachers coming in and the unions coming in saying, hold on, the teachers are having to manage classrooms and behaviors and they can't manage them. And so suspension becomes the tool to manage classrooms. So it became politicized very quickly. And so is that still where the the sticking point is? It is a little bit. And I will say Bernadia was an, a huge advocate for schooling to mental health and making sure that kids had access to mental health care and for social emotional learning. She was an incredible leader in that area. Um, but she's right. What do you learn, especially for little kids? What do you learn by being suspended? Nothing. You learn nothing. You don't learn new behaviors. I mean, punishment in little kids just doesn't work. So we need to help, you know, we need to help them, right? We need to teach them um, some of those social emotional skills so that they can do better. And even in older grades, you know, we know restorative justice circles, we know those things actually are more impactful than suspension. The most ridiculous thing is when kids are truant that we then suspend them. I, I can't even understand why you would do that. So there's a lot, there's a lot that needs to happen there. And I, I understand when teachers are, you know, trying to keep the classroom settled and, you know, some child disrupts it, but we don't solve the issue long-term and we don't help them learn if we simply suspend them. Is there any policy efforts that are underway in this particular area that would be important for listeners to know? I think that I think the important thing is one, again, not allowing suspensions in K through three in terms of that bill, but also funding social emotional learning. Mm -hmm. We do really need to do that. And especially now, kids have not really been in school in the kind of normal way, you know, since over the pandemic. And so we need to really help them kind of learn those skills. I was going to say, can you just say what social and emotional learning is. So I remember my response when I first heard that, right? And and so to me, it's embedded in the idea of what schools should be doing. And so are we funding something that fundamentally, right? I mean, I think if RT was here with me now, he he would like tell me to be, be quiet because he's such a fan of social emotional learning. And I'm not suggesting that I'm not, but it feels like it it's sort of par for the course but what, how do you see that? Like, what are you funding when you're funding social and emotional learning? Well, there's actually evidence-based practices um, and curricula that exist um, to be able to teach kids those things. You know, some schools are also adding things like mindfulness, you know, learning how to quiet your brain yourself. I mean, we need to learn that as adults, right? When our anxiety starts going up and our stress level starts going up. I mean, we use the apps like Calm and Headspace to kind of help us calm down. We do deep breathing in elevators, right? To calm down before we leave or come to work. And kids need to learn those too. And they have found that mindfulness and yoga really help young people a lot, um, helps people who experience trauma, learning to uh, really name your feelings, you know, as a young child also really helps. So instead of just, you know, hitting something or throwing something, you start using your words, right? Those are things that we say all the time with, with our kids. And so, again, there are evidence-based practices that we can use in the schools, which is why we need the extra money. It's just not a teacher trying to do it on top of everything else, but we have someone who's trained to deliver those kinds of programs who can come in and work with all the kids. I got it. So what we're talking about is expanding the curriculum to include wellness practices, social and emotional practices, 
And then having someone on site that can then support that throughout a school building is what we're, we're talking about. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. So the other space that mental health has been heavily discussed is in the criminal justice system and co-responder models. And I, for one, absolutely agree my concern here is that that we don't have the mental health infrastructure for the call responder model. Like, do you think that that we have the infrastructure to respond instead of police at this moment? Or what do you think is needed in order for that to be effective? So for more than a decade, we have actually funded mobile mental health crisis teams for all 87 counties. Most people are totally unaware that those exist. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, it's going to be different in Northwestern Minnesota when you're covering, you know, huge distances versus Hennepin County or Ramsey, for example, but we have them. And there are actually, when they're funded through the state, it's a little over $20 million. Um, there are qualifications for the providers. There's data that they have to keep. Uh, there's HIPAA requirements because you're dealing with healthcare. And they have shown that it's very cost-effective because they do prevent hospitalizations. They do prevent people from going into jail. And they do address people's mental health concerns. The biggest problem initially was that there were actually 40 phone numbers. And so no one knew like who to call. And then we passed Travis's law saying that 911 operators have to send out a mobile mental health crisis team where appropriate. And now we have 988, which also can connect people as well to the mobile crisis teams. What's become more confusing, honestly, is that now we have cities and sometimes counties who are adding their own teams. So, you know, you might have a city that's adding actually a co-responder model where a mental health professional is going out with a police officer. The officer makes sure that the scene is safe and then that person does their work. But people don't actually always know the difference between that co-responder model and the county mental health crisis team um, because the crisis team can actually provide stabilization services for you know, 10 to 30 days after that crisis occurs. And then you have some cities who are just funding their own and then people really aren't sure who they call. And at times, for example, in Minneapolis, we've had the Hennepin County COPE team. We've had the city team and the police all show up at the same time. And mm-hmm. so that collaboration needs to start taking place. So people, you know, again, are working together on this. Where does Canopy fit in there? That's not COPE, right? It's not COPE. Nope. So it's a city funded team. So they just respond to uh, crisis calls within the city. And what they provide is still a little different than what COPE provides. Mm-hmm. And COPE, you can call their number directly as well. And and we've had calls from people who are confused as to who they should call. And we, we have people who are still worried about calling 911, afraid that the police will be sent out instead of the canopy team or instead of COPE. So the teams that go around the state how does that work? So so they try to handle things over the phone. And there's a lot that you can handle over the phone, frankly, you know, kind of talking to this mental health professional or peer specialist about what's going on. They can give good advice. Um, they can talk about means restriction education. They can say, this sounds like the person really needs to go to the ER. They're probably going to need inpatient. So they can work through all of that with someone. But sometimes you need to come out to actually deescalate a situation, try to engage the person so that they'll go to treatment voluntarily. But I think the important thing to remember is that you figure it's 21 million for the entire state and what one department's, you know, city's police department is, we don't fund our mobile mental health crisis teams like we do any other first responder. 
And so they can't always respond within the same timelines. But they also, again, don't always need to be there immediately. They can, again, do a lot over the phone um, or why they're on their way. And so who is doing this best in the country? Like, are there exemplars in the country that you would point to that we could be learning from? Or I'll stop there. Are there exemplars? Well, I think we're doing it in Minnesota. We just need to fully fund it. And we've been doing it for a lot longer. You know, people have referred to, you know, one city that's doing it. Well, the whole state isn't doing it in those areas. Our whole state is trying to do this so that we make sure that everyone is covered. And, you know, again, we have standards. We have data reporting so we can really measure what's happening out there. But we need to fully fund it. And people forget sometimes that, well, it's a healthcare service, so they should bill for it. But, you know, think about the fire department. We pay them to be idle because we pay them to be ready to respond to a call. And so we need to do the same thing with our crisis teams. So I think what we have is good. We just need to expand it to make sure that they can fully meet the needs of the community. And and I will say, if someone has a weapon, you're going to have police go out because it is not safe for you know, a mental health professional to go out um, if there's, for example, a gun involved. And that's when the co-responder model becomes really helpful to make sure that we can create a safe scene for the mental health professional to do their work. And we had the recent uh, case with Techley, who seemed to be clearly having a mental health crisis, knowing that we were not on scene and we're not attorneys and we're not making an assessment here. But in community, it feels like based on what I know on this particular case, there were signs of crisis that were happening. And I can think about people that have I've been around where there's been signs of crisis. And you pointed out that many families are afraid to call 911 or they don't know where to call. Right. Like there's something going on with my child. They're displaying something and I cannot get services for them. I don't know what to do. And they have a weapon and I can't get the weapon taken away from them. Like what what should we be doing if we recognize those behaviors in someone that we're either working with, living with or living next door to? Do you have recommendations there? That's that's a really tough one. The the first thing I would say is means restriction education is really important. So, you know, if you know that someone is, you know, living with depression or, you know, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, you should be removing any weapons that you know of. Um, and if you think they're headed towards a crisis, really m- remove anything that they could hurt themselves or others with. Get them out of the house, right? Lock them in your car trunk, do whatever you can. That would be kind of the first step because you don't want them to have access to those things because just in terms of hurting themselves, not even hurting others. And then the other thing is you can call the crisis teams before it's a full-blown crisis. And you can call them to say, you know, I'm worried about my loved one. What is it that I can do to help? Is there someone who can come out and talk to them again before we hit that point? We actually passed something a couple of years ago when we redid the Commitment Act, and it's called Voluntary Engagement. And unfortunately, we don't have counties who have opted in yet. But what we've heard over and over again from families is, you know, I can see that my loved one is decompensating. I can see the symptoms come back. And if I if I call the county, you know, I call pre-petition screening or whomever, they'll say, well, are they willing to go to treatment voluntarily? And I'll say no. And they'll say, well, then you have to wait till they're a danger to themselves or others, which is really kind of absurd when you think about it. So what the voluntary engagement law would do would actually allow families to call or friends to call and to say, I am worried about my loved one. They would send someone out. And if the person said no, they'd come back again and again and again and try to engage that person into treatment voluntarily. 
At the same time, they could check, does the person have housing? You know, do they have insurance? Do they have a mental health professional? They could educate the family about means restriction education. How do you talk to someone who's having delusional thoughts or negative voices in their head? How do you do that? And how do you support them? And, you know, then we're intervening early, right? And trying to get someone into treatment. And that part is totally missing in the mental health systems across the country. And here we have it in our statute and we can't get any counties to do it. And yet I think if you can talk to any family, you know, who's had a loved one with a serious mental illness, they will say, Doing this would have absolutely helped. And do we have local policy that would um, allow for a gun to be removed from someone with mental health issues? Does a family have to do it or is there laws that actually allow for that to happen? The family pretty much has to do it. There's been you know, discussions about red flag laws and things like that that could take the guns away, um, but we don't really... Sometimes some police will allow police departments will allow those guns to be stored at their stations, but it's it's kind of tricky to mm-hmm. be honest. So it's better if a family member can just remove it when you think it's unsafe for the person to have one. So right now in our state, if someone went into the hospital on a mental health hold or a suicide hold for 48 hours and they walked in with a weapon, when they went out, they would get that weapon upon release. Most likely they would. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's only when you've been committed. And of course, the 72-hour hold is not a commitment. Once you've been committed, you can't own a gun. But prior to that, you could. Mm-hmm. Now, the family might be able to convince the you know hospital not to give them back. And if they actually thought they were still a danger to themselves or others, they just didn't fully meet the commitment act, they might still not give it back. It would be, it would kind of depend on the situation. You've mentioned a couple of things in terms of what can be scaled and how resources. Um, and then you you talked about 988. Um, For those that don't know what 988 is, can you just provide some context on that? Sure. So we've always had, um, you know, for decades, a national suicide lifeline that anyone could call. But, you know, it was a long number that you weren't going to remember in a crisis. And so this way we have just three digits that we have to remember, 988. It still connects you to the suicide lifeline. And the goal was actually to expand it across the country to include crisis services to connect people to mobile crisis teams or whatever was available in their community. So in Minnesota, we do have call centers that um, will answer those calls, but we did not get the funding this last legislative session to ensure that all the calls from Minnesota are being answered in Minnesota. So they'll be rolled over. The other thing that happens with this is that it's not geo-based. So they look at your area code. So if you have an area code from another state, 847, you know, something like that, those calls will actually go to that state and not Minnesota. So it's something nationally that they have to keep working on. But, you know, still, again, easier number to remember, you know, if you're feeling suicidal um, or you have a friend who's suicidal, please encourage them to call that number. You can text and chat to 988 as well. And we can still use the text line in Minnesota where you just text MN to 741741. Uh, A lot of young people, as you know, don't make phone calls. So texting is actually really important to them. Can we go back to just anxiety? And I don't know, like, tell me, Sue, if this is an area that you haven't really paid attention to, but this whole thing, and we talked a little bit about culturally specific and diverse workforce. We've talked a little bit about anxiety in the workplace. 
And another area that has come up very frequently is the hybrid model of working, right? Working from home for those of us that have been privileged enough to be able to do that, which is in fact, not the majority of the world or of our nation, but not being in the environment of macro and microaggressions, right? Uh, on a daily basis, which also takes a hold on one's mental health, right? So the the impact of racism on one's mental health Have you done any research or are you looking at any impact on that in your work? We're starting to see some research being done on that. And certainly that's understandable, right? You don't want to have those, be dealing with those aggressions, you know, every single day. Um, So it's, it's coming out. I don't know how we, I mean, we look a lot at legislation and, you know, education support around things. So we haven't really kind of figured out that piece yet, but we certainly, you know, understand the impact. But I do want to say there's also the impact of being alone. That also can be really difficult. And you think about how you develop friendships, how people found their spouses, you know, all those kinds of things. It's usually been in the workplace. And so I I think there's also concern about young adults working from home, for example, not meeting other people. That I think can also take a toll on people's mental health. So it's like, how do we, how do we balance all of that together? How do we make sure that we eliminate right? Racism and microaggressions in the workplace, as well as making sure that we're promoting social connection. Because when we look at things like overdoses and suicides, a lot of it is that people are not socially connected and they're, they're lonely. And we want to make sure, you know, they're it's, you know, sometimes we talk about it as despair. We want to make sure people are connected too. So I don't know how we, I don't know how we do all of that and, and promote good mental health on top of it. I don't know if you have thoughts about that and if you've seen that. You know, I don't, but I I just feel like, especially in the last couple of years, right, we've had new talk about race, right? New talk around diversity, equity, and inclusion, new talk about what it means to have a just society, which I think has been largely positive that we are now talking about it in a more substantial way. It does mean that there's just more of it, right? And there's lots of awkwardness around it. There's difficulty, there's mistakes being made. There's burdens on on many people of color that are engaging in that conversation. And I think there's lots of anxiety on white folks that I have discomfort around it. And you can just see it playing out in the workplace, right? In these very awkward ways. And I said beyond, right? In community more broadly. And it just feels like, right, when you look at the social determinants of health, like that being one of the conditions around health is are you in a place that's inclusive or that is racism free feels like utopia, really. Yes, I I would agree. It does feel like utopia, but it's something to to move towards. Reading Resma's book, you know, Quaking in America and learning a lot from it. And we just have a lot to work to do you know, frankly, as a community and as a country on this issue. And I certainly don't have the answers to that. So when we were talking about schools and policing, we were talking about students and residents, but we don't often talk about like the mental health of the teacher or the officer. Like I sort of touched on it, but as we were talking, I was thinking, I mean, I've ran, I have five kids. I've ran across some teachers where I'm thinking, I'm not sure everything is working together here. Or it seems like your stress level is so high that you're creating a lot of anxiety in this classroom right now. And so is there any efforts that are happening in the districts 
right? And recognizing, right? Like certainly not in any way minimizing the stressors facing our teachers and support staff in schools right now, but are there any additional supports that are going to them to support them going back into the classroom that you're aware of? I'm not aware of anything specific, um, but I think we can certainly all admit that teachers (laughs) went through a, a pretty stressful time trying to teach kids remotely you know, to switch to that so quickly was not easy for them. Trying to, you know, connect with kids over Zoom. I mean, that that's just not, it's it's hard to read kids, right, on those little screens. And it's hard for kids to stay engaged too. Um, I know many, when we looked actually at the impact of the pandemic, women were more impacted than men because more of them actually were in charge of distance learning. And so mm-hmm. they had that additional stress laid on them. So teachers have been through a lot. And, you know, and when I think of, you know, even the the strike in Minneapolis, what they were talking about was, right, more support for the paraprofessionals that they got paid better and more mental health supports for the kids, but they needed to. And and I don't know of any specific um, activities that have been done to support the teachers coming back, but we also know that many of the schools are struggling to fill out their positions. Some people are just saying, I just can't do this anymore. One of the conversations that we had, and I mentioned this at the front end of this conversation, was the presentation that you did to the Minnesota Women's Economic Roundtable. And in that conversation, you were providing some tips for folks if they were feeling anxious or needed to get grounded. I wonder if you might want to reshare that because I've been trying to repeat it. I've completely jacked up whatever you said, <laughs> but it was five, four, three, two, one, or something along that. And I've I've messed it up, but I would love it if you would maybe share that with us. Sure. So there are some simple things that people can do to really deal with their stress and their anxiety about, you know, what's what's been happening. Uh, One of them is called grounding. And so it's really to kind of get yourself more aware of your surroundings um, to help ground you. See five things. So literally point them out You know, my water bottle, right, my printer, my phone, really count them out. And then you feel four things. So touching your shirt, perhaps the desk, the warm cup. Um, You hear three things. So listening for, um, I can hear my white noise machine, right? I can hear someone walking down the hallway, smell two things, and then taste one thing. And that helps ground you, right? Because you're not, your mind isn't going all over the place. It's really, it's really looking at what is surrounding you. And that can really help. Um, The other thing that we don't really talk about a lot is breathing. Breathing is, we just do it naturally, right? But when you really focus on your breathing, you can actually quiet yourself down. And I do this all the time in my car, um, in the elevator, when I'm leaving work and feeling stressed. And so if you kind of, you know, breathe in um, to five or six and breathe out to four with a whooshing sound, you can feel that stress leave your body, which is really important. Um, And then we just try to remind people of all the things that we all know to do, exercising, It doesn't have to be cardio, right? Just taking a walk around the block, a walk down the hallway, around your house, anything like that can help. Um, I always, you know, joke about dancing in the kitchen with your kids to some music um, can also be a really good thing to do. Being in nature helps, which is why parks are such an important part of our city and making sure there's trees on the boulevard um, because being in nature can actually help calm us down. And the other thing that we talk about is space and grace. So really giving people space and grace during this time, we're not doing our best every day, right? Some days we're crabby because we're feeling anxious or, you know, we didn't sleep well the night before, things like that. And so really just trying to give people space and grace for what's happening in front of you 
will actually make you feel less tense if you don't respond to it in more of an angry way. Sue, I appreciate that. I've been thinking about it and and I've been, you know, even talking to my daughter about, you know, just, I think I've said, see five things, smell four things. And I'm like, oh, it's kind of hard to smell four things, but I definitely (laughs) stopped thinking about whatever else I was thinking about. Before we go, I know that you are so embedded in the space. And I wonder if you might take a couple of moments to just say maybe what's coming up next for you or things that you think that for folks that are paying attention to this issue, where might they focus and where might they be able to perhaps be able to make a difference? So I guess the first thing is to make sure that that you educate yourself. So September is actually Suicide Prevention Month. There's a lot of suicide prevention classes. So really learning what are those signs and symptoms and what can I do? A lot of us have taken first aid. We need to do the same when it comes to mental health, right? We need to know what those signs and symptoms are and what to do. The other thing I would say is that if you're struggling uh, with your mental health or you have a family member, you don't have to do this alone. So there are support groups out there that are led not by mental health professionals, but by people themselves. And, you know, knowing that you're not on this journey alone can really be helpful. And then the third thing is, you know, there's elections coming up and elections have consequences. And so ask, you know, at a candidate meeting or if the candidate knocks on your door, ask them. So what are you going to do to help build the mental health system? I like to say that our mental health system isn't broken. The reality is it's never been built. And we need to continue to improve the funding, really address things like workforce, payment rates, all of that to really build our system. And so ask those people who are running for office, what is it that you're going to do? And then when the session starts in January, you know, please reach out to your legislators, you know, those who got elected to say, we need to fund mental health. We need to take care of this issue. We need not to suspend kids in K through three. You know, we need to fund schooling to mental health. We need to fully fund our crisis teams to really do all of that so that when people need mental health treatment, they can access it. I want to go back to the Black church comment because there's a lot of places that will go to their church or their mosque or places of faith And they have been raised to believe this is a place that you go when you are struggling. And that is true. Are there things that you might recommend for those faith communities to do to complement and to offer maybe some additional resources to their congregants? I would recommend that they know what the resources are in their community. So where are the Black psychiatrists? Where are the Black mental health professionals? Where are the clinics in your community that really do meet the needs of the community? Um, but also to understand, we know that having, having a faith community actually breaks down that isolation. You know, sometimes giving up your struggles to a higher power can be really helpful. And faith is an important part of people's recovery. We strongly believe that. But sometimes it's not enough. And so really kind of encouraging faith communities to say when when you're not enough to help someone to really make sure that you connect people to those other resources. Sue, is there anything that you want to say that I have not asked you? I think the only thing is is just to remember how much the pandemic impacted our mental health. You know, we lived with that uncertainty, not knowing when it would end. Right. And that's really hard for our brains to do. We had a lot of people who were worried about catching COVID. We had a lot of people who died by COVID, including disproportionately people from the BIPOC community and people with schizophrenia. And so we have a lot more grief in the community. We lost out on some of those really important life events, including funerals and weddings. And for young people, graduations, going off to college, 
all of those things have been really, really hard on us. We have to recognize that and then we have to counter it, right? By being more mindful about taking care of ourselves and taking care of our mental health. Um, it's not selfish to take care of yourself. It's an important thing that we should all be doing. Yeah. So as a mom, I'm going to go into my mom hat, which I almost always have on. So 2020 was a year for me, right? So I sort of said I wasn't going to talk about my mother passing away, but my mother passed away in 2020. I also had a sister-in-law who was 45 that died in 2020. That's sort of the, the sad part of the year. I had a senior in high school who graduated that year and a senior in college who graduated that year. And I had a son that was getting married that year, got married that year. So I had two graduations of marriage and two funerals. I mean, it could not have been a more complicated um, year, right? And so now I have a son who is going into his senior year. And it's been really incredible to sort of watch the one who missed prom, who missed all of the things leading into that year sort of witness the younger brother. And I'm a little bit at a loss. Like it's one thing for him to care for his own mental health around those things. It's something else for me to observe that he is recognizing what he has missed and grieving it. And then the compounding grief, right? So if you were advising me, and that was just a lot, right? And what I just said, like, what would you, I mean, as a mom, and there's a lot of moms or folks that are working with kids that have these compounded issues or that have multiple things that they're grieving, you know, I mean, I think you've said it in there, get people to therapists, get, you know, pay attention to the signs. I think you have said it um, to be mindful of it, to give grace, but, uh, you know, I don't know if there's other, other uh, suggestions. And I'm sorry for your losses. It's, you know, it's been a, it's been even harder in some ways to lose people during this time. I, I lost my husband a year ago unexpectedly and Grieving during a pandemic is just harder, right? It just is because you can't connect with people, your friends or family in, in the same way that you could before because you don't want to catch COVID. Or just funerals, right? Like like she's gone. Right. And I don't even know if we can celebrate her life with people that I know that loved her. Like we can't even have more than 60 people in the service or whatever, right? Exactly. Like that was hard. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly, right? And, you know, no one's fault. It's just what it is. And we kind of call it ambiguous loss. And I think that, I think as a mom, you have to talk about it with your, with your kids, right? You have to acknowledge it and say, yes, perfectly legitimate that you're sad about this, perfectly legitimate that you're feeling maybe in some ways jealousy that you didn't get that, right? Because if we don't acknowledge it, it's still there, right? But acknowledging it helps you talk about it. And so kind of opening that door so that they can talk about it, I think is really important. And because, because, I mean, you know, I made that deeply personal, but from a system's point of view, like, is there a role that the school can do in acknowledging for young people? Like, is that that day come and gone? Or like, it just feels like there needs to be sort of wraparound of those of us that are responsible for caring for community to acknowledge the loss. You know, I've heard of some places um, doing a delayed graduation you know, mm -hmm. and just kind of bringing the students together and saying, yeah, you missed out on this, but we're going to bring you together to provide some closure. Honestly, it's not the same. 
not walking across the stage, hearing your family scream in the background, right? But we're going to bring all the graduates together from, you know, two years ago, just to be able to gather and talk and maybe in some ways kind of process through that. We've heard of delayed proms, you know, just things like that. Again, might seem silly, but I mean, again, at my age, I don't even remember graduating from high school, right? <laughs> right. I just don't. But when you're 19, 18, 20, right, you remember that. And that's a really important rite of passage that you missed out on. We have to talk about it. And if there's a way to make up for it at this point, I would still definitely, you know, encourage schools to do that probably easier in smaller places and smaller schools than larger ones. But we have to acknowledge this. This, this was really hard for young people. Yeah, it was. So I appreciate the work that you are leading. I think this was you know, important conversation for us to have because there's not a many conversations that I am in, right, in my work at the Minneapolis Foundation where the issue of mental health does not enter the conversation, whether or not we're talking about education or criminal justice, or if we're talking about workplace, um, self-care, like it, it just feels like it is in the water in terms of how we're talking about it, but it doesn't feel like it's that way in terms of surfacing solutions and scaling those solutions. It is, but it's never in the paper. I mean, the one of the few appropriation bills to pass this legislative session was on mental health with over $90 million. Most people didn't know that that happened. So that's kind of the hard part. I mean, I see every legislative session, good things happen. More money for things like crisis services or schooling to mental health, addressing some key issues like competency restoration talking about what can we do in the schools? What can we do in terms of housing? So those discussions are happening at the Capitol. There are good bills that are passed, but nobody knows about them. I would encourage people, if you're really interested in kind of the legislative and public policy issues, we actually put out every weekend a legislative update that lets people know what's happening on the state and federal level in terms of mental health policy. So people can really see um, what's happening. We have in Minnesota, the Mental Health Legislative Network. It's over 40 organizations that come together to work together during the legislative session. Um, We actually just held a retreat where we identified what's going well, uh, what's not going well, and what are some of the legislative solutions so that we can come in you know, there's going to be a lot of new legislators. So we're going to come in with just a limited number of bills to not kind of like overwhelm them about all that needs to be done so that we can really make it clear about what are the next steps to build our mental health system. So there is a lot going on, but again, it's never in the media. Where would the, where would folks find that information if they were to look for it? Um, They can go to the NAMI Minnesota website, which is just NAMIMN.org. Perfect. Thank you, Sue. Thank you so much for inviting me this morning. I appreciate it. If you enjoy this show and want to learn more about what we do here at the Minneapolis Foundation, please visit us online at minneapolisfoundation.org. And of course, if you want to follow Shonda or the Minneapolis Foundation on Twitter or Instagram, that's Shonda S. Baker or MPLS Foundation. This is Sue Pak Thanks for listening.